Well, we'll continue now worshiping our Lord by looking at his word together and bringing our lives under it. Let's pray and ask for his help as we do that, that the Lord would make our time profitable in his word. Heavenly Father, you have told us that your word is truth. And so we ask again that you would sanctify us in your truth. Pray, Lord, that you would open up your word, that you would cause it to be understood in our hearts and that we would place our faith in it, God, and so be transformed by it. And we pray this together in Jesus' name. Amen. Well, if you've been a Christian for any period of time at all, you will, you will certainly be able to affirm the truth that despite being born again by the Spirit of God and despite being united with Christ in faith and even being indwelt by the Spirit of God, as Christians, we still struggle with sin. Inside each one of us, the sinful flesh wages war against the Spirit of God. Our, our sinful bodies, our sinful flesh, still has an inclination towards sin, towards rebellion against God. You know, the Apostle Paul writes in Galatians 5.17, for the flesh sets its desires against the spirit, and the spirit against the flesh, for these are in opposition to one another, so that you may not do the things that you please. So on the one level, we, we desire to do what is right and pleasing to the Lord, but then on another level, we still desire to sin. And so the upshot of this internal conflict is that we sin far more than we would like. To use James's words in James, James 3, 2, he says, For we all stumble in many ways. In other words, we all sin in many ways. In Psalm 19, uh, in verse 12, David writes about what he calls hidden faults, his own hidden sins, sins that he knew he had, but that he wasn't aware of. They were hidden from him. David knew there were ways that he was rebelling against God that he was even oblivious to and not conscious of. And we readily acknowledge that that same is true of us. There's sin that we have that we don't even know about. So again, as Christians, we have no problem whatsoever affirming that we still sin. We are not perfect. One day, when we pass from this life or when Christ returns, we will be made whole separated from even the potential of sin on that day. But for, for now, that day has not come for any one of us. And so if you are still breathing air, then you, as a Christian, are still fighting against sin. Sin in your own hearts, sin in your life. And that's true of each one of us. Therefore, part of our responsibility as Christians is that we must learn how to repent and confess our sin. And a key portion of God's word addressing the topic of dealing with our sin is 1 John chapter 1. And so as we begin our time in God's word this morning, I'd invite you to open up to 1 John. It's so important for, for you to see with your own eyes what God has revealed in his word. Far more important than my mere words is that you see what God has written. So if you're starting near the back of your Bible, book of Revelation, and you work backwards, you'll quickly find the epistles of John. And look with me at 1 John, beginning in chapter 1, verse 5. This is what John writes. He says this, This is the message that we've heard from him and announced to you that God is light, and in him there's no darkness at all. God is light. That means he is perfectly righteous. He's perfect light. There's nothing morally corrupt about God. God is light. In verse 6, John then provides a test of fellowship with this God. He says, if you are a Christian, this will be true of you. Look at verse 6. If we say we have fellowship with him and yet walk in the darkness, we lie and we do not practice the truth. And so to walk in the darkness here in verse 6 means to just habitually traffic in sin, to be willfully sinning in your life. We should not be walking in the darkness, but we should rather be turning from sin. We should not be cultivating 
sin in our lives. And then he says in verse 7, But if we walk in the light, as he himself is in the light, we have fellowship with one another in the blood of Jesus. His Son cleanses us from all sin. And really the key question of verse 7 is, what does it mean to walk in the light? Does it mean that we never sin? Well, that can't be the case for reasons we'll see in just a moment. Rather, to walk in the light means to live a holy, repentant life. A life characterized by striving to obey God and also by turning from sin. It's, in other words, to live a repentant life, and on, a life of ongoing repentance. Verses 8 and 10 then make it clear that this struggle with sin will continue. Look at verse 8. If we say we have no sin... We're deceiving ourselves, and the truth is not in us. Or in verse 10, if we say we have not sinned, we make him a liar, and the word is not in us. In other words, don't pretend that you never sin. That's just not true of any of us. And so part of what it means to walk in the light is to acknowledge that you are a sinner, and that despite your best efforts, we all still have ongoing sin in our lives. And then verse 9 tells us what we're to do about our sin. Look at it with me. Verse 9, if we confess our sins, he's faithful and righteous to forgive us our sins and to cleanse us from all unrighteousness. So when we sin and when we're aware of it, we are to confess to the Lord, remembering that the blood of Jesus cleanses us from all sin. So we acknowledge to the Lord uh, that what we've done is sinful, whether it be an ungodly thought, a, a harsh word, a, a failure to obey God in some way, whatever it may be, we acknowledge it to the Lord. We confess it to him and we embrace the forgiveness that we have in Christ for that sin. And this does not mean that since we have this forgiveness that we can then be lackadaisical in our approach to sin. As if we were saying to ourselves, well, well, I know I can sin because I'm certain I'll be forgiven. Jesus will forgive me, therefore I should just go on and do this anyway. No, that's not the thought and the intention of a true Christian. It's not the words of someone who understands what it truly means to follow Christ. That's, John, that's not John's intention in this passage at all. And he makes that clear in verse 1 of the next chapter. Look at chapter 2, verse 1. My little children, I'm writing these things to you so that you may not sin. And if anyone sins, we have an advocate with the Father, Jesus Christ, the righteous. So John wrote this so that we would strive to avoid sin, to fight against the temptation to sin. But when we sin, when we fall into sin, we are to confess it and go to our advocate, who is here, Jesus Christ, the righteous. This is what we're to do when we sin. We confess it. We remind ourselves that we have an advocate, Jesus. And by faith, we trust that we have been forgiven. Our sins have been dealt with. But as you know, just because the Lord forgives us, it doesn't mean that there might not be additional consequences of our sin that we must walk through in this life. Sometimes, as a result of our sin, the Lord brings corrective discipline into our lives. The Lord may use a trial in our lives as a means of correcting us, of teaching us, of rebuking us for our sin. This is really the main subject of Hebrews chapter 12. If you would, just back up a few pages with me in your Bibles, to the left in your Bibles, to Hebrews chapter 12. And look with me beginning in verse 4. Look what he writes there. He says, And you have not resisted to the point of shedding blood in your striving against sin. He, no, he, you are striving against sin, but it's not to the point yet of shedding blood. And have you forgotten the exhortation, exhortation which is addressed to you as sons? My son, do not regard lightly the discipline of the Lord, nor faint when you're reproved by him. Verse 6, for those whom the Lord loves, he disciplines, and he scourges every son whom he receives. It is for discipline that you endure. God deals with you as sons. For what son is there whom his father does not discipline? But if you are without discipline, of which all have become partakers, then you are illegitimate children and not sons. Furthermore, we had earthly fathers to discipline us, and we respected them. 
Shall we not much more be subject to the Father of spirits and live? For they disciplined us for a short time as seemed best to them, but he disciplines us for our good so that we may share his holiness. And then look at verse 11. All discipline for the moment seems not to be joyful, but sorrowful. Yet to those who have been trained by it afterwards, it yields the peaceful fruit of righteousness. So God's children should expect this discipline from our Heavenly Father. This is part of how God trains us in our striving against sin. Nonetheless, verse 11 states, in the moment, this discipline is not joyful, rather it's sorrowful. I think any child can tell you this, that discipline is not fun. It's painful. It hurts. But we are trained by it. God's discipline in our lives is meant to yield the peaceful fruit of righteousness. So Hebrews chapter 12 prepares us to expect this fatherly discipline from our Heavenly Father. And yet part of the difficulty for us is that when we encounter a trial in life, we don't know for certain whether the Lord has sent that trial to us as a result of our sin, or if he simply just ordained that trial for our good. We know with confidence that no matter what we endure in this life, whatever suffering or trial that we go through, we can be certain that God is using it for good. That's the truth of Romans 8.28, right? We know that God causes all things to work together for good to those who love God and been called according to his purposes. So we know that every trial the Lord will use for our good. And we also know that occasionally we will suffer through trials as a result of just living in a sin-cursed world. In other words, we face trials that have nothing to do with our own personal sin. An example of this would be Job in the Old Testament, who suffered for reasons outside of his control. The very opening verse of Job describes Job as an upright and righteous man. And yet, despite all of his righteousness, God brought untold trials into his life. And that can be true of us as well. Job was righteous. And so again, this is the difficulty. When we encounter a trial in our life, and James tells us again to expect to go through many, we can be certain that God is, is sovereign over that trial, and he has ordained it, and he desires to use it for our good and for his glory. And we must acknowledge that, that it is possible that our suffering may be a result of our sin that we may be suffering because we've been in sin and we've been doing something sinful. Some suffering is a result of our sin. It is God's corrective discipline in our life, but some suffering has no connection to our sin. And this is the struggle for us to determine, well, what is it? And since it may be true that God has brought a trial into our lives to discipline us for our sin, or it may be true that our suffering has no connection to our sin whatsoever, suffering, therefore, should always prompt us towards self-examination. Whenever we go through any trial, we should be asking ourselves, is God doing this in my life for some reason? Is this his corrective hand of discipline? It seems to me that we're often too quick to assume that our trials have nothing to do with our sin. We assume that our phys physical afflictions must necessarily have no connection to anything in our spiritual life or our spiritual health. When we encounter a trial in life, I think we do well to question how we've been living. Is this trial a result of my sin? Have I been neglecting some spiritual obligation that I have and the Lord is correcting me? Is, is that why I'm so depressed or why I'm so anxious in life or, or whatever it may be? You see, there ought to be a healthy self-examination that should arise out of our trials. And if there is sin, we should be quick to confess that sin and repent of it and go to our advocate, the Lord Jesus Christ. But when we suffer or go through a trial, I think there's two errors to avoid. It would be an error, number one, to assume God must be punishing us for our sin when we go through a trial. It would be an error to assume God is certainly punishing me. He may be, but we ultimately don't know. 
I would say, if there's clear sin in your life, for, exa- for example, if you've been nursing a private life of hidden sexual sin or pornography and, it, and your spouse finds out and it leads to great conflict in your marriage, then yes, by all means, you should connect the two. You should connect this suffering, this trial, to your own sin. On some level, as you go through that marital conflict, you should recognize the Lord is using this to train me, to teach me. But if we go through some trial and there is no clear correlation to our sin, then, then perhaps God is not doing anything in connection to our sin. Perhaps it's just his sovereignty in your life. If you've been trying to live righteously, you've been walking in the light, you've been repenting of all the sin in your life, and God brings a trial into your life, it just might be his sovereign will for you to go through this so that he can strengthen your faith and help you to grow. For some Christians, whenever a person gets sick, it's almost like the, the immediate assumption that, oh, there must be some sin in their life that caused this. But that's not the case. It could be, but it could not be as well. God has not given us the ability to discern these things with 100% clarity. So, so again, the first error is to assume that God must be punishing us when we go through some trial. But the second error is to assume that our sufferings and our trials have no connection to our sin. That would be an error also. To assume that our sufferings are never connected to our sin. That would also be an error. Your trials could very much be directly related to sin in your life. Sin in your life may not only produce painful relational consequences, they may even lead to physical illness. It may lead to depression of the severest kind. And in those instances where a child of God suffers as a result of sin, we must see the corrective hand of God behind it, see his discipline in our lives. And in the book of Psalms, we find colorful illustrations again and again of the physical effects of sin in the believer's life. And I think the best, clearest example of this is in Psalm 32. I'd invite you to turn back to Psalm 32 with me. This psalm is one of seven penitential psalms in the Psalter. In other words, there are seven psalms in the book of Psalms that, functions, that function as prayers of confession or prayers of repentance. The, the, perhaps the most best known prayer of repentance is Psalm 51, but Psalm 32 is another example of a prayer of repentance. Look with me how the psalm opens. Psalm 32, verse 1. How blessed is he whose transgression is forgiven, whose sin is covered. How blessed is the man to whom the Lord does not impute iniquity, in whose spirit there is no deceit. Look at verse 3. When I kept silent about my sin, my body wasted away. Through my groaning all day long, for day and night your hand was heavy upon me. My vitality was drained away as with the fever heat of summer. I acknowledged my sin to you and my iniquity I did not hide. And I said, I will confess my transgression to the Lord and you forgave the guilt of my sin. And just note here in these verses the physical effects of David's sin. He says, my body is wasting away. He's groaning all day long. God's hand was heavy upon him and his strength was just sapped up. We find something similar in another penitential psalm, Psalm 38. Just turn a couple pages to the right, Psalm 38. And note carefully the, the, the words of verse 1 of Psalm 38. O Lord, rebuke me not in your wrath, and chasten me not in your burning anger. For your arrows have sunk deep into me, and your hand has pressed down upon me. There's no soundness in my flesh because of your indignation. There's no health in my bones because of my sin. For my iniquities are gone over my head as a heavy burden. They weigh too much for me. My wounds grow foul and fester because of my folly. I'm bent over and greatly bowed down. I go mourning all day long for my loins are filled with burning. And there's no soundness in my flesh. I'm benumbed and badly crushed. I groan because of the agitation of my heart. So note that as a result of David's sin, he's in physical anguish. 
He speaks of his bones. He speaks of his wounds. He speaks of his loins even burning. And even his heart is agitated. The language goes far beyond just mere metaphorical descriptions of of emotional turmoil. His sin and his spiritual life have bled over into his physical well-being. It continues in verse 9. The Lord, he says, Lord, all my desire is before you, and my sighing is not hidden from you. My heart throbs, my strength fails me, the light of my eyes, even that is gone from me. My loved ones and my friends stand aloof from my plague, and my kinsmen stand far off. David's sin even here led to plague-like physical conditions. He, he was sick, and underneath Underneath all of it was rebellion against God, was sin. And this sickness was being used to chasten David. And God was also even, not only using this physical affliction, he was also using personal enemies of David. That's what we see in verse 12. Those who seek my life lay snares for me, and those who seek to injure me have, been, have threatened destruction. They have devised treachery, treachery all day long. Again, David has told us that this is all a result of his sin. In verse 3, he says, it's because of my sin. And so in Psalm 38, in Psalm 32, in other penitential psalms, David's processing his sin and his repentance out loud with the Lord. And as mentioned, there are seven of these psalms like this, penitential psalms. Psalm 32, Psalm 38, we've seen Psalm 51 also, Psalm 102, Psalm 130, and Psalm 143. And then finally, the seventh penitential psalm is Psalm 6, which is the psalm that we come to today. Psalm 6, if you would back up there with me to Psalm 6. If you're like me, Psalm 6 is probably not a psalm that you've spent a lot of time studying but nonetheless it is part of scripture is it not and so we know the Lord is meant to teach us and train us for righteousness through this passage the Holy Spirit left Psalm 6 behind for us to to reprove us by it to correct us by it and to train us in righteousness and in particular I believe Psalm 6 ought to equip us in regard to how we uh, how we ought to respond to sin when it leads to suffering, when we sin and we're suffering as a result, I think God has given us Psalm 6, Psalm 6 to help us sort through our thoughts. The prayer life of David is once again very instructive for us. And like the other, the other penitential psalms, Psalm 6 in, equips us to respond rightly when we sin and when we suffer because of it. And since we all sin, and we're promised sufferings and trials in this life, and and since we're also promised to have God's corrective discipline in our life, then Psalm 6 ought to be very important to us. It has a word for each one of us if we're willing to listen to it. So Psalm 6 unfolds in four parts. There's really an abrupt change that happens at verse 8. There, David's prayer turns. He's no longer praying there. He begins to give a stark word of warning. But there are a couple other divisions that we can note along the way. The first section of this psalm is verses 1 through 3, and I'm just calling this section David's confession. Look at, look at it with me again. O oh Lord, do not rebuke me in your anger, nor chasten me in your wrath. Be gracious to me, O oh Lord, for I'm For I am pining away. Heal me, O Lord, for my bones are dismayed, and my soul is greatly dismayed. But you, O Lord, how long? As I mentioned, I'm calling this section David's Confession. And you might be saying, well, that doesn't look like a confession per se to me. And in fact, you might be asking, are we sure David has sinned here in Psalm 6? Are we sure of that? And I think so. I think that's the right type of question that you should be asking when you come to Psalm 6, though. I hope to be able to demonstrate to you that I believe David is expressing his repentance in Psalm 6. And I believe that there are three reasons that from this verse 1 that help us to see this as a confession. 
I've told you already that historically Psalm 6 has been considered a a penitential psalm, but I will acknowledge there are some Bible scholars who don't believe that anything in verse 6 has to do with David's sin. I think those scholars are wrong, and I think you should think they're wrong as well, because I think if we miss the connection between David's sin and his suffering in Psalm 6, we're going to miss what the Holy Spirit would have us would have us apply from this psalm. So I'll give you three reasons why I believe David has sinned and then is expressing his repentance in this psalm. So three reasons, and they all come out of verse 1. And reason number one is that God is angry with David. That much is very clear. David is asking God to not act in his anger. He says, O Yahweh, in your anger do not rebuke me. And in your wrath, do not chasten me. There's no evidence here that God is angry with anyone but David. He's he's talking to David. And this, again, suggests that David has done something to provoke God's anger. He's sinned. He's transgressed. So, So God is angry. Secondly, David uses the words rebuke and chasten here in verse 1. And both verbs denote correction and reproof for, wrong, for wrongdoing. For example, a form of each of these words is found in Psalm 39, verse 11. He says there, with reproofs, you chasten a man for iniquity. Using both those words, with reproofs, you chasten a man for iniquity. You consume as a moth what is precious to him. That's a relevant verse for this passage. So with reproofs and with chastisement, God corrects a man for his sin, for his iniquity. So those are two terms here from Psalm 6, verse 1, that are commonly used in correction for sin. And finally, as a third reason that I believe David has sinned and therefore is expressing his repentance in this psalm, is that verse 1 is almost exactly the same with verse 1 from Psalm 38, which we already read Psalm 38, verse 1, but perhaps you noted this already, but let me read it to you. It says, O Lord, rebuke me not in your wrath. Chasten me not in your burning anger. So Psalm 38, verse 1, and Psalm 6, verse 1 are, are very similar. And this is important because as we've already seen, Psalm 38 is very clearly a penitential psalm where David is interacting with his own sin. So for these three reasons, I conclude that Psalm 6, in it, David has sinned. He's sinned in the past, and now he's expressing his repentance. So God is angry with David. God is using terms that denote correction from sin. And then the connection to Psalm 38 all make it clear that Psalm 6 is an example of a righteous man's response to sin and the Lord's corrective hand of discipline in his life. So in verse 1, David is really recognizing his sin. He understands why God is angry with him, but really he's requesting a lesser degree of correction or punishment. David's like the convicted criminal seeking an early release from prison. He says, no more, O God, I can't can't bear any more. My punishment is too much for me. And this continues in verse 2. Be gracious to me, O Yahweh, for I am pining away. Heal me, O Lord, for my bones are dismayed. David's pleading for mercy, pleading for grace. He's requesting undeserved favor because he knows he deserves the opposite. And David's body in this verse is is withering away like a blighted plant. His bones were even dismayed or troubled. And so in some fashion, David's body was suffering as a result of his sin And thus he was in need of healing, physical healing, emotional healing, spiritual healing, yes. Then in verse 3 he says, And my soul is greatly dismayed, greatly troubled. But you, O Lord, how long? The second half of verse 3 really contains really fragmented, uncompleted uh, question. In, In the Hebrew, it's almost as if there's words missing. In the the original, a sentence begins with the word I, but then is sharply contrasted with the word you. In effect, it's saying, as for me, I'm terrified, but as for you, O Lord, how long? And the question is really unfinished. 
It's as, it's as if David was so weak and so terrified and so anxious because of his suffering that he can't even finish his thought. It seems that he means to ask, how long, O Lord, will you allow me to continue suffering in this miserable condition? But all he can muster out is, how long, O Lord? And so this is what I'm calling David's confession. I'm certain that it's more than that. David's also calling out for help and for relief, but he is acknowledging that his suffering is the Lord's chastening for his sin. And he's not really at all here, we have to acknowledge, calling into question the justice of God. It's not as if he's saying to God, why are you doing this to me? This is unfair, God. No, he's embracing his sin. He realizes that his sin is what has induced this suffering, and he pleads God to to remove it, to lessen, and he he pleads God for mercy here, for a lessening of the penalty. Therefore, I think confession here is strongly implied. David's confession then leads to David's petition, and that's what we find in verses 4 and 5. Look at them with me, verses 4 and 5. Return, O Lord, rescue my soul. Save me because of your loving kindness, for there's no mention of you in death. In Sheol, who will give you thanks? So David here is petitioning the Lord. This is David's petition, and his ask is for salvation. He says, return, rescue my soul, save me. Three requests for deliverance. And then he really cites two reasons to induce God into action. First, he asks God, to act on behalf of God's own loving kindness. He says, return, O Lord, rescue me, not because I'm worthy, not because I deserve it, but solely because of your loving kindness. Again, this is the Hebrew term, hesed, your covenant, faithful love, Lord. David is praying, God, please rescue me because of your favorable disposition towards me. We might say, please rescue me because of your grace. And your gracious character. As you recall, God chose David out of a field of sheep to become king over Israel. And so from the beginning of David's life, his relationship with God has always been one of grace, which is the same of you and I, of course. But it's because of God's grace and because of God's loving kindness towards David that David is now pleading with God to act. David is essentially citing God's character as the reason God should save him. God, you are gracious, therefore save me. And he then provides a second reason in verse 5. Save me, for there's no mention of you in death. And in Sheol, who will give you thanks? In this verse, David's argument before the Lord amounts to this. Look, my life has been one of praise to you. I regularly praise you in this life, and if I die, my praise will cease. If, If my suffering ends in death, There will be no more praise and thanksgiving from my lips. That's it. That'll be it. And then in the second half of the verse, he refers to death as this term, sheol. Sheol is a word commonly used in the Old Testament with multiple meanings. It can refer to the grave. It can refer to death. It can refer to even a near-death state, like extreme danger. It can also refer to hell or Hades, or the the realm of the departed spirits. But in this verse here, because of the parallelism of the first half of the verse, I think here it's referring to death. And I don't think we should read into this verse anything about David's beliefs about the afterlife. We, We know that David was looking ahead to a resurrection. Psalm 16 makes that clear. So so David's petition here is for deliverance. He says, save me because you deserve praise. You deserve thanksgiving. And if I die, you will not get praise from me anymore. You will not get the thanksgiving that you deserve, at least not in the same form, we might say. Death would certainly put an end to David's praise towards God. From the grave, there would be no praising of God. There would be no more joyful shouting coming from David's. And so for this reason, David's saying, look, you deserve praise, so let me give it. Save me so that I can continue praising you and thanking you. And so in this section, David gives him two reasons. Your gracious character, and because you deserve praise, therefore save me. And this brings us to the next section. 
David's anguish in verses 6 and 7. Look what he says here. He says, I am weary with sighing. Every night I make my bed swim. I dissolve my couch with my tears. My eye has wasted away with grief. It has become old because of all my adversaries. I think these words are best understood as David continuing in communication to God in prayer. And in them, he describes really his misery. He describes his anguish. We might call them words of lament. And so with honest expression, David describes his condition to his God in the hopes that God would be moved to compassion. You see, we might, we might assume there's really no value in explaining to God our, our own pain and misery. I mean, certainly you think, well, God knows what I'm going through already. But there is value in talking to God about what we're going through. We see David doing it time and time again in the Psalter. And David knew this was appropriate to share his trials back to the Lord. We know that God has told us to pour out our hearts before him, to commune with him in prayer. So that's what's going on here. David is describing his trial. And this trial here is really an extended trial of just duration that has just worn David out and exhausted him. He's weary in verse 6. And I think this is the type of emotion or exhaustion that just comes from the, the intense release of emotions over time, like the weariness that one feels after attending a funeral of a close friend who died unexpectedly. Just a sad funeral that causes you to weep and weep. It's that emotional exhaustion that you feel after such an experience. And that was the psalmist's every night reality, he says. Every night his tears saturated or, or soaked his pillow or flooded his bed. Graphically, he describes the intensity of his ongoing weeping. He says, I cause my bed to swim, as if his bed was floating away on a river of his own tears. Certainly, this is hyperbolic language, but it depicts David's anguish of his heart. In verse 7, we see more physical ramifications of his trouble. His eye wasted away and grew dim in darkness. I think the eye may be functioning here as, as really a representation of his entire general health as a whole. Even today, a person's eyes can be an indicator of their general health. You see if someone's going without sleep and they're tired, you see it in their eyes. Or perhaps when someone's depressed, you see, a, you see it in their eyes, a, last, a lack of vitality and, and sharpness in their eyes. So David's describing his health here in verse 7 as just becoming old and withered because of his grief. And this this is all even because of his adversaries, the end of verse 7 says, which maybe even give us more insight into the trouble that David was under. David had his attackers. He had his enemies, and somehow they contributed to his grief. And this vexation of soul that he was going through and even causing in some way his physical ailments. But we should note carefully that David is not petitioning his enemies. He is not beseeching them for mercy. No, he prays to God. He prays to the God who's sovereign over his enemies. David knew that his enemies were just ultimately the pawns of his heavenly father and God's power was over them and therefore David seeks relief from God alone. So David has confessed his sin. He's petitioned the Lord for help. And now he's describing his his condition to the Lord. Again, just seeking compassion from the Lord. And this brings us then to the abrupt change in this psalm. I'm calling it David's warning. Look at it with me. Verses 8 through 10. Depart from me, all who do iniquity. For the Lord has heard the voice of my weeping. The Lord has heard my supplication. The Lord receives my prayer. All my enemies will be ashamed and will be greatly dismayed. They shall turn back and they, shall, they will be suddenly ashamed. So David here in this verse is no longer praying. It's like his prayer has now ended. And now he's lecturing his enemies about God. And he gives a word of warning here to all who 
do iniquity. And this term here describes those who are just continually rebelling against God, who, who live their lives just trafficking in sin. And he tells them, David does, depart, stand back, get away from me. And he gives them th- three reasons to motivate their withdrawal. And note the tense of these verbs. He says, Yahweh has heard the sound of my weeping. Yahweh has heard my supplication, and he receives my prayer. So twice here he expresses his certainty that God has heard me. And then he says, God always receives my prayer. He always hears me. And I think at this point we ask in the psalm, okay, what's changed? Where did all this bold confidence come from, David? In verses 1 through 7, it's as if he's on the brink of death, and, and now he's here roaring like a lion. What, what changed? It's not as if God struck down David's enemies. David's warning them that that may come in the future, or that will come in the future, I should say. So we ask, what has changed? Did God speak from heaven, giving David a word of assurance as if God said to David, David, I hear your prayers and I'll take care of it, rest assured. That could have happened, but there's obviously no evidence of that. And so I think the change here was all internal for David. It was a change in his perspective. It was David's faith now coming to life. David was able to pick his eyes up off of himself and then place them on the eternal horizon. It's like he's saying, look, as a result of my sin, I may be vexed now, but listen, I may be suffering now, but at the end of the day, I know that the Lord has set apart the godly man for himself. I know that the Lord hears me when I call. And like that, despite none of the external circumstances changing, he's still in this painful condition. I trust his enemies are still yet there, and yet everything has changed for him. His faith has made everything changed. Now his concern is no longer for himself. His concern is for his enemies, for those who do iniquity. In verse 10, in the future tense here, he says, All my enemies will be ashamed. They will be greatly dismayed. And they shall turn back, and they shall be suddenly ashamed. David uses the very same phrase from verse 3 that he used to describe himself to describe what will become of his adversaries. They will be greatly dismayed. They will be greatly troubled. They will be terrified. They will turn back. They will be ashamed. And all of this will come on them suddenly, he says. Suddenly, in verse 10. It will happen quickly. In the twinkling of an eye, the tables will be turned. And so by faith, David is looking ahead to what he knows will be the certain destiny of all the ungodly in this life, all of those who rebel against the Lord. And I don't suspect David is here looking for God to somehow intervene in a supernatural way and judge uh, these adversaries, as if David believed God was going to somehow strike them from heaven right then and there. God certainly could do that. But I suspect that David was reminded of what awaits all men when their allotted days on this earth come to an end, when they come to judgment. That's Hebrews 9. We all have one life to live, and then, then comes judgment. And that judgment comes when our life here on earth, this vapor of a life, dissipates, and we stand before the Lord. And so I'm reminded of how the psalmist speaks of this judgment coming upon the ungodly in Psalm 73. If you recall there, the psalmist in a deep depression of his own, as he sort of drifted away in self-pity and got caught up envying the wicked, he was quickly grounded by the reality of judgment upon the ungodly. There he writes in Psalm 73, when I pondered the prosperity of of the wicked, it was troublesome in my sight until I came into the sanctuary of God, and then I perceived their end. He says this to God, Surely you set them in slippery places. You cast them down to destruction. How they are destroyed in a moment. They're utterly swept away by sudden tears. Like a dream when one awakes, O Lord, when aroused, you will despise their form. David's saying, look, just when they step out of this life, when they pass on to the next life, 
judgment comes suddenly upon them, and they're taken away in judgment. And so in a very similar way, that's the thought that I believe lifted David out of his misery in Psalm 6. It's here on this thought that the fog that clouded his thinking was lifted, and the hope of eternal life fills his heart. So the psalm ends with a Uh, with a faith-filled warning to sinners and all those who walk in iniquity. Yes, we'd say David has sinned. God has chastened him for his sin, but now David has moved past it. He's confessed it. He's repented. He's prayed for deliverance. And now his faith is coming to life and slowly his eyes are lifting off of himself and from his miserable condition uh, and back onto eternal truth. Therefore, in a moment, David goes from weeping and self-pity to evangelistic warnings. In Psalm 6, David moves from confession and pleading for mercy to warning sinners in really a strange turn of events. It's sort of a strange plot twist in Psalm 6. He's addressing his own life, thinking of himself and his sin, his position before the Lord, crying out for help, and now he's addressing sinners. And yet, there's one more real twist that I think comes from Psalm 6, but it doesn't come from David himself. It really comes from David's greatest descendant. That is our Lord Jesus Christ. You see, we might be unfamiliar with Psalm 6, but our Lord wasn't. Jesus quoted from Psalm 6 twice. Jesus quoted verse 8 once in Luke 13 and once in Matthew chapter 7. Now go there with me in closing. Look at Matthew chapter 7. And it's interesting that David used these words from Psalm 6 to describe all those around him who were walking in iniquity, those who were living lives of sin. But Jesus uses them not of his adversaries, not of his enemies, but Jesus took up the words from Psalm 6 and he used them to describe those who claimed to be his friends. Those who were claiming to be his followers, but who were perhaps actually his enemies. Look with me at these well-known words from Matthew 7, verse 19. Jesus says, Every tree that does not bear good fruit is cut down and thrown into the fire, so then you will know them by their fruits. Not everyone who says to me, Lord, Lord, will enter the kingdom of heaven, but he who does the will of my Father who is in heaven will enter. Many will say to me on that day, Lord, Lord, do we not prophesy in your name and in your name cast out demons and in your name perform many miracles? And then I will declare to them, I never knew you. Depart from me, you who practice lawlessness. There's the words from Matthew. From Psalm 6, depart from me, you who practice lawlessness. Jesus quoting from Psalm 6. So in this section of scripture here, Jesus is saying, look, you will know a true follower of mine by how they live their life. You'll see it in the fruit of their life. But on the last day, those who come to me and start citing all of these supposed religious things they did in their life, saying, God, look at all the things I did. Remember how much money I put in the offering plate. Remember all the times I was at church, Jesus. Don't you remember that? Jesus says to those people, he goes, look, away from me. I never knew you. And he says, depart from me, you who practice lawlessness. You see, it's the people who are seeking to follow Christ earnestly with all of their life, which means that when they sin, they're repenting from it and turning from it. They're they're not hiding their sin in religious hypocrisy. You see, Jesus here shuts the door of heaven in the face of religious hypocrites. He says, depart from me, quoting David from Psalm 6. And perhaps the takeaway should be for us here that those who pretend allegiance to Christ but really have a a lack of heart to follow him, they will be unmasked soon enough. Religious hypocrites, in the end, become the enemies of Christ, and their, their destiny is eternal destruction, eternal damnation, and therefore, we should walk in the light. We should walk in the light. We should be turning from sin as much as we can. 
We're not pretending that we're perfect, constantly repenting of the ways that we sin against God and coming back to our advocate, the Lord Jesus Christ, again and again. Psalm 6 and Matthew chapter 7 end the same way. They end in a warning, a warning against sin and rebellion and a reminder that judgment is coming suddenly. And therefore, let us take our sin seriously. Let us deal with it rightly. Let us mourn over it. Let us be taught and instructed by it. Let us confess it. Let us repent of it. And let us return to our advocate for forgiveness, not pretending that it doesn't exist, not hiding it under a rug, just pretending to be nice, but dealing with our sin in the way that scripture prescribes. So with that in mind, let's go to the Lord's Ask him for help to do this. Heavenly Father, we thank you for these words from Psalm 6. Lord, we thank you for how David thought about his sin. Lord, we just ask that you would help us to learn from David and his words here. Lord, would we be quick to return to our advocate, the Lord Jesus Christ? When we sin, would we confess it to you? And would we be quick to repent of it? Would we strive against our sin? And Lord, I pray that none here would be like those of Matthew chapter 7 who acknowledge something about Christ. They say to him, Lord, Lord, but then their life doesn't reflect obedience to him. They have no desire to follow him. And Jesus sees through that on the last day. Lord, and so we pray that there'd be none here that have that rude awakening on the last day. Lord, help us to deal with our sin appropriately and rightly. And even when we are disciplined by you and would we welcome the correction that you bring so that we would be more fruitful more faithful and more fruitful in this life for your service so that you could get the most glory out of our lives as possible that's our desire we want to be faithful to you we want to be faithful vessels for your service and so we pray you'd help us towards that end this morning and we pray this in jesus name amen